0: Hello, Belinda here, Omar and I have been having such a great time season two of this podcast, featuring amazing people focusing on collective acceleration, from entrepreneurs, healers, activists, leaders, they've been such beautiful and deep conversations. We're excited to feature another full length interview with VC, an author of a cookbook And uh, she shares a lot about how food is medicine. So we're excited to cook up some gratitude with this interview as we get into the season of gratitude this month. And for those of you that like to get an early start on your holiday shopping, we've got some new gift ideas in our shop at gratitudeblooming.com. Enjoy 20% off with the code bloom 22 Enjoy.
1: Before even reading the prompt, mm. just staying with the visual component, you know, just intuitively and yeah, just describe what you see.
2: I've never heard of this plant, nor have I seen the actual plant itself. So, just from what I see on the screen, it looks very delicate. So, I'll take that as a nod that self-care is something that is very delicate.
1: And now as you look at the prompt, what can you do today and every day to nurture love for yourself?
2: What's coming to me is quiet moments. I think days can get very, not even loud, but just a lot of movement in and out. So I love to find quiet places and quiet moments to just sit.
1: Well, you know, this plant is perfect for you because you're releasing a cookbook or a stories and recipes, and the alien triquetrum is a part of the onion family.
2: Yeah. So my journey with my book, I have a hard time describing even to myself what it represents to me. And it's because it, Feels so ordinary to me. The the book is both my go-to meals and family meals that have been just around for the span of my life. And it's accompanied by stories of food at different times in my life. Probably I think the youngest story was maybe when I was 10 through my early 30s. And so that's why it feels so ordinary. And I think it's the accumulation of all the recipes I've learned and and lessons that I've learned, particularly in the Thai community, but not exclusively. And it became so much a part of who I am now. I just carry it around with me no matter where I am and no matter where I go that I was like, oh, now it just lives in a book. It just doesn't live in me. (laughs) <laughs> and so when I describe, like, what it is, it, it's been building and building over years, and with, a, actually, with a lot of encouragement from friends that I have cooked for, said, you should write a cookbook, you should write a cookbook, It there finally became a moment, and the pandemic, I think, was that moment. A, a few other convergences as well, but I was cooking throughout the pandemic, you know, in a much more intensive way than my usual cooking, and then, you know, I kind of had this opening in my career where I actually didn't know what I wanted to do next. And when there's just this blank slate, I think the only thing that can come out is whatever it is that you are. And the most ordinary, authentic thing that can come out of me were the recipes that I've always known and the food I've always eaten and the memories that I bring with me, you know, in, into all my experiences going forward, and so in that way, that's why I keep saying it is ordinary to me. But I needed a place to put them and share them with, and you know, literally maybe feed people in words <laughs> as opposed to just on the plate. So that's how it came to be. I guess I guess you could say you know there's there is a Chinese proverb that I've been a fan of for a long time that says some I'm gonna maybe mince it a little bit, but you know a lot of. Perf- Chinese opera performers, I think, say it takes 10 years of practice for the 10 minutes on stage. And I'm also a a Thai traditional dancer, so I really relate to that, too. And that's how I felt like what I felt this book was. It took decades of learning. But really, the writing of it and the production of it was probably, you know, this band of start to finish Close to two years. So it's like decades and decades. And and like the percentage, the percentages came out that way. So that's how how the journey felt is decades and decades and then a very quick, relatively quick output time, (laughs) like a stir fry.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Lots of time cutting ingredients and then all of a sudden it's just, you know, quick. Yeah. It would be wonderful to maybe just share a little bit about your journey. What what was happening in those decades of decades? You gave us a little bit of a of a clue with the the Thai dancing, but share with us. And I and I would also love for you to. Um, it's such a curious word to use. Ordinary, you know, a, a, another sort of word might be almost like comfort food, right? Because the ordinary is often very familiar, so then therefore it's comfortable, and so. Yeah. Comfort food is obviously a whole thing. It's like, Hey, where do I go when I just want something very familiar? Right. And I also just say that, you know, I believe there are only ordinary people, right? But it is ordinary people who do extraordinary mm-hmm. things. And so it is absolutely extraordinary that you, you know, cause a lot of people were stuck at home and baking bread and doing all sorts of things, but not everyone then took that energy to then take the time to write a, a cookbook so yeah if you can give us some context uh, that would be great yeah.
2: yeah i think my other word for ordinary is every day mm. every day whatever whatever is the usual the go-to so the decade story is i my parents were the the migrating generation both my mom and my dad are immigrants from thailand and my mom was a particular breed of Thai person where, you know, I think me and my friends who grew up at a Thai temple, we were part of this founding class at a Thai temple where there's a weekend language school and then attached to that a weekend performing arts school where you would learn Thai music and Thai dance. And I detested it. She made me go every weekend. I wanted I don't even know what I wanted. Maybe I wanted horseback riding or piano lessons or something, but she made me go. And I love her for it now. But we became part of this community where those parents, I have no other word but gung ho about it. They were hardcore. You know, they wouldn't let us speak English. So I I find that very unique. And so I essentially had this second home of a Thai Buddhist temple in Berkeley, of all places. And I grew up off and on going to summer school there, and, and then eventually the performance became this super interesting place where I experienced a whole different kind of education. I You know, we, I would be going to my preppy high school during the week. And then on the weekends, I would be at this magical place that just had instruments and children running around and meetings on the floor in circles. So there, were, there weren't very many chairs. <laughs> there were a lot of mats and wooden instruments everywhere and birthday cake. That's what I remember. Lots of birthday cake and ice cream. And so I, I consider that, you know, Before I said, oh, that was just kind of this extracurricular education. But as I've gotten older, I really hold it true. And even I say that even more in my adult professional career life, that was my education. And so that I would say more than anything, that was the context of how that book was written, because I just feel so blessed to have been steeped in this DIY makeshift community that our elders, you know, Color high water. They like our children will speak Thai and know Thai things. And I don't even. I think it was as much for them as it was for us too. They wanted this really comforting, as you say, space to call home. And they did it.
3: VC, is it that same Thai temple that serves the food on Sundays?
2: Oh my god! Thank you
3: so much for having that place because I remember finding out about it when I was living in Oakland. And we would go there like religiously because of the food and also just it felt so community oriented. And um, I can relate as a, a Taiwanese immigrant who went to Chinese school every Saturday, <laughs> every Saturday. It was like, oh, my God. Um, and and so did you were you in this journey? Did you went, go straight from this these experiences in the Thai temple, just nourishing yourselves and together? to studying culinary arts? Like, was that kind of a natural transition yeah. that you made? Or was it a kind of a dual, a hybrid, you know,
2: thing that you put together? That place, I think, exposed me. I think it trained my palate. Nothing about that place taught me how to cook, actually. <laughs> because we were the performers. They, they, they made very sure that there was something to eat at every possible moment which I thought was amazing. But it, it's, it's actually not that difficult of a feat. Um, in the Thai community, most of the parents, there owned a restaurant. So food was plentiful. And so the, the group also had us travel in Thailand on particular summers as teenagers, as young adults and college years. So I think that also developed my palate. But I think my culinary aspirations began – when I went to college and was deprived of the Bay Area first of all, and then I would come home every summer, and I I said I have to know how to cook these things because I'm I'm dying over there. And and where's I, over there? Just oh, oh the East, East Coast, small town, Massachusetts, very quaint college town. I went to Smith College in Northampton, lovely, I, it's absolutely beautiful. Falls, but not, not a lot of Thai surprise out there. And so I would cook for my floor mates, which was super fun. And it was the smallest, you know, I think on its last leg plug-in burners. And they said, you know, I had this reputation. They said, you have made more things on that burner than I think they make in our kitchen. <laughs> so it came from deprivation. And then lo and behold, they had this kind of open call, this three week period where students can teach each other whatever we wanted, you know, before classes begun. And so I taught I taught a type my first Thai cooking class in college of similar to many of the recipes I have in the book. It, it, it started from there. That's where I started to write my recipes. And so I would say my culinary education began in college out of moving away from the Bay Area. I cooked as a teenager, but really making it my own. And I think it just blew up with the advent of YouTube. You know, I could, anybody can really just be kind of a self-made home cook these days.
1: And, And professionally, you though were in the nonprofit sector. So this was like the cooking was the labor of love side hustle. And what was the day job?
2: The day job I've mostly profit programs. I started out in youth development, basically high school after school programs is what I would call that, and focused on immigrant youth actually in the Richmond district of San Francisco. and I moved on to workforce development, so I taught workshops on um for job job seeker skills, and then I moved on to leadership development. I went to business school somewhere in there. Uh, but I, I went on to leadership development. So those were kind of really fun retreats in Sonoma for, uh, mostly activists and nonprofit directors.
1: And, and how is the sort of, sort of transition sort of from, it's almost like full circle, right? Like I love how you said they didn't train you how to cook, but they really trained you to change your palate. With, did you need a cleanser to help sort of like a palate cleanser to sort of switch or how, what's that sort of just life transition?
2: A lot of my professional life has been focused around, let's build the agenda. You know, what's on the agenda for the day or the week of the month? What are our milestones for this year? I think that's that's very common work speak. And I wish we could spend more of that ta- agenda planning time figuring out what to eat. <laughs> what we want to make for each other, and I think that my theory—I have yet to, you know, conduct a full-on experiment to this—is I think we would come to the same place, if not an even um, more cohesive place, if we spent more time just, you know, cooking a meal together. And I, and I and we have—I have been in jobs where, you know, that one team-building event each year is like let's cook together, and then it would happen, and we would have such a great time, and then we would be forgotten until next year. But I think if it was, you know, woven, we eat every day. And I I would often have co-workers admire how religious I was about not eating lunch at my desk. I was in a position of leadership I should not have been taking these long luxurious lunches, but it was it was to talk and chat with people on the team. I think at the expense of some of my tasks, I will say that. It was at the The expense of a lot of my tasks, but I would take these long, luxurious lunches. But I think it does pay off in the team spirit.
1: We just interviewed uh, another new author who is a bar owner. He uh, (laughs) has 25 bars and restaurants here, not just in L.A. And, you know, I think he really talked about redefining hospitality again, starting with love. And, you know, and we just talked about, I just read this quote from Jack Kornfield about how if you take like a meditation practice, but then add in compassion or loving kindness into a meditation practice, like the benefits of the meditation are like 10 times greater. And so I would just I would love for you to talk a little bit about maybe some of the values that are infused from your elders in the community and like how that has maybe infused your recipes and sort of just approach mm-hmm. to this book.
2: When I think about my elders, there's one woman in particular, she founded the cultural center part of the Thai temple. And, it, and according to her, if you were to ask her, she thinks she's like a second mom to every single one of us. And to this day, you know, I I actually just saw her after not seeing her for close to three years after the pandemic. And she's in her 80s now and stronger than me, I have to say. So I think that speaks to the power of community and care and how it is not definitely not at odds with our own health. I think just body, I mean, she's 20 years older than my own mother and healthier. Her memory is sharper. It's amazing. So her amount of care for the community actually reflects back on her own well-being and strength. So that that I think is one very solid example of what my elders have kind of what the example has been. You know, we would joke around like I had I had this like comrade, my best friend at the Thai temple. And we would we would be the Thai American kids who would have to and adults at some point, you know, once we started actually working. But being a part of the elder meetings, that was that was a big day that we would be a part of the elder meetings and helping the work move along, helping the performance, helping whatever festival move along. We would just joke that sometimes you know, we have a show to put on. This is like an all-out musical that we're putting on and not one person in the production meeting would ever take any notes, you know? And what, is this going to work out okay that they're not taking not one notepad in the room or just talking? But the minute they said, what are we going to eat? You know, what are we going to serve that day before the show goes on? Like, oh, let me. I need to write this down because I'm going to forget the stew pot. So I <laughs> I thought, what, you know, that's so, it really just spoke to the priorities and I just it absolutely, it, it was without fail at every meeting. The clearest part of the agenda was what will we serve the kids that day before they go on stage? It wasn't something that was milled over or talked about in process, but it was clear that who's going to be providing food that day. And that would be like the first thing to be talked about. Then we can get into the logistics of the show and the costuming and the lights and all of that kind of stuff. So that was the other example. And we would refuse venues. We, we performed in a number of spaces in the Bay Area. But when it was our own show, we would refuse venues that would not let us bring in our own food or not allow food at all. Mm-hmm. So a lot of theaters, I like, can imagine like bringing in food that just it doesn't they, they would not allow outside food onto into their event space. But we would just then say, no, this isn't going to work. We have to find someplace else. So just the how essential and necessary it was to feed both the performers and the audience before a show was a no, non-negotiable.
3: I'm really struck by the word care right now as you're speaking, because even the way that you're like, I'm not going to eat at my desk, like you have a ritual around the care with food. And that is been marinating all your life, you know, with your experiences as a child in the temple and just this community culture that was really reinforcing this value of like, we're going to take care. And so I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit, because some of the things that are the most natural to us, it's kind of like, it's almost instinctual. And so for our listeners who want to maybe answer this prompt by saying, I want to take a long, lavish lunch, now because I deserve it. I'm worth it, right? I want to cultivate that culture. Unpack that a little bit around your ritual with taking care around food and nourishment in that way. Just, yeah, just take us through that. Like, how do you, what's a non-negotiable? How do you set it up for yourself, you know, in the everyday ordinary way, or maybe in more of a special occasion? Because this is something that probably for a lot of people, like there's no cultural
2: container that holds that
3: like like it like it is for you. I'm actually trying to
2: think of a typical pre-pandemic day too because that actually I in many ways that was tougher to hold food as a sacred part of my day pre-pandemic times because I was at an office and and it I have to say I was lucky enough to work at places where if I had a commitment, which I would call lunch, (laughs) people would honor that. So thankfully, I've been in teams that honored that. I will say I did have to practice some flexibility once I took on a position of leadership and I had more responsibilities. But even then, folks had promoted me knowing that that was who I was. So it was okay for me to say, we are definitely eating at this meeting. Like, can you all bring your lunch, too? And we would eat together. It wouldn't be like, let's squeeze in this meeting and. You know, have lunch after or, you know, find another time to eat. I would just say, Oh, can we all? (laughs) I was, I was very diplomatic. Like, can I bring my lunch? Can we all get lunch? Oh, can it all be on the company card? (laughs) You know, so I would squeeze in every excuse to have, have that happen. And I, I have to say, you know, it was such a no brainer for me. And I, when I think of a, a nine to five role, you know, a lot of people have these nine to five roles or just roles that are very demanding where the work is, you know, time sensitive. There are deadlines to me. And I would say that my. What would be kind of like the center revolving thing of my day? So like what would my day revolve around? And I would immediately either say my email or whatever my project management software was or whatever my meeting schedule was. And I would say, okay, that would determine the pace of my day. But then if I'm really being honest, I actually have these demarcations of my meals. Like, yes, all of those things mattered. Yes, I would go to my to-do list. Yes, I would go to, you know, when are my meetings today? But I would also just hold it. I think it just takes this kind of anchoring skill to just lunch. And the the amount of minutes would vary. But if I would just kind of, you had that very lovely opening about rooting as if you were a tree. So for me, when I think of lunch, that's me as a tree. Like that's when I break. And I think if for some folks that's the struggle or if this idea seems really foreign, start small with a snack. I even have a snack right now. Lucky. Just have, have something always available. I, I think, you know, what I've admired of my coworkers who didn't have that regimented lunchtime like I did, that was the way I did it, is that people find a way. And so some of my friends, they would just, food would just, even though they didn't have a set time, food was always on their desk. So that was another way that people would just really honor the care and just, I have to eat today. And if I know I'm busy, I'm going to lay it all out at the beginning so that when I do get busy, oh, here are my eggs, here are my apples, and, you know, just kind of continually be grazing throughout the day, which I thought was so cool, kind of like goats and cattle.
3: Is there a way that you connect the intention and the energy of your care into the ritual of preparing the food with your hands, or even for yourself when you're eating, you know, before you put in your mouth, like, what is that intention or that energy or the care? Because I feel like there, it feels like there's something that you're doing that's nonverbal potentially. Like what, what is that? Can you unpack that for us?
2: For me, I think in the actual physical act of the very tactile act of cooking in Thai food, something that has not gone away through modern times is the mortar and pestle. I think maybe the only exception to that is if you were cooking for huge quantities A restaurant may use a blender or food processor, but in most of the Thai homes I've seen is the mortar and pestle is still there. And so there's something about I'm pounding something of myself into the whatever paste or chili sauce I'm making so if there's something nonverbal of myself that's being infused, I consider it during that time, the, or even the time of slicing, something that's very repetitive, you know, slicing or, or pounding. You know, it's not just kind of pounding away the way like a three-year-old would be at a drum set. There's something very rhythmic about pounding a chili paste together that is, it can't be sloppy, <laughs> I think even, you know, in my youth work with the Thai youth, as I've grown up and we had a cooking class for them, I'm pretty sure most of them, it might be like a 50-50 if they do or don't cook at home with their families. But when we had them do the mortar activity, even though they might not have ever done this before, and I think I remember I was like, have you ever done this before? And they're like, no. But they knew how to do it because they've heard the rhythm in their house. And that hasn't been the case when I've taught non-Thai people how to cook. You know, there's something like not, there isn't a consistency or there's there's kind of a timidness with the way that non-Thai folks that, you know, unfamiliar with the mortar and pestle will pound. And I didn't, I did not have to teach that to the Thai kids at all. They heard it even though they'd never done it before. So they they know what pace and what strength level. To pound, and I think for me that if there's any non-verbal infusion that enters the food, it would be through through that act.
1: So there's, we've talked to a few folks who have made this transition from growing up with grandparents or parents who they just cook, and you know, and then the the children now want to cook and or you know even doing what you're doing is creating a cookbook and there's a difficulty in that transition in that you know you ask well how much of this do you put in and they said well I don't know like a a pinch full or I I just put it in my hand and it looks like about enough and you know and so I'd be curious if you had any of that sort of like translating what are just cultural practices into a recipe, which is, you know, has to be a little bit more specific, right? And, and I love that for you, at least you had the palate training, right? So, you know, but you're now even having to then make that translation of like, well, it feels like it needed a little more fish sauce or something, right? Like, um, and you know, and, and I think part of it is interesting for me is that I grew up with my grandma who was born in China. And at least when, so I was 10 years old. And then I remember going off to college and finding this Chinese cookbook and just being like, Oh, these are actual recipes. Like I just thought my grandma had like tomato and beef at home, or beef and broccoli. Or I just thought it was what we had in the house and she just threw it together and put it over rice. Like I just, I had no idea that like these were actual. Like Chinese sort of recipes.
2: (laughs) Uh, I have to say that was the most frustrating part of writing a recipe was the measurements. It it took a while because I think many people could relate to the idea that in our family we eyeball everything. Just, oh, just a couple gloves with this, a couple swishes of that, and you're done. So that I have to say that really the most frustrating part. I would just stand making things. I was like, Oh, this could be so much quicker if I could eyeball everything. And I, I stood with my spoon. Sometimes my mom there are a couple recipes I needed my mom's help. And she's like, We're gonna and she was much more disciplined about this because she has a little background in, in French cooking. So it was she was actually much better than me. And she's like, Oh wait, wait, we have to measure this, like the spoon. So that was super helpful and I have to say it, for, for certain recipes, it took a few tries to get to a number, to get to something I felt comfortable putting on a page. So I, I became very self-conscious when it came to my measurements and I think I do have to get over that feeling of, but this isn't the way it's actually done. But, you know, just in order to transmit something to somebody else, we do need kind of a standard. I can't just say, oh, just take the old spoon and, you know, who knows how big that spoon is in another house. So that, that was kind of the fun, but also the frustration in taking something that is something that I learned so instinctually and viscerally, but making it relatable and standard for whoever whoever else might end up reading this.
3: I can so relate to that. I'm from Taiwan and it's the same thing. People ask me, "How did you make that scar- spicy eggplant?" I'm like, "I can't tell you. You just have to watch and take notes cuz there's no way to quantify it." <laughs> and DC, I'm so curious. You know, we talked a lot about your pre-pandemic time and then just the output of the, you know, the two and a half years, three years Tell us about what was that transition in your career? Because I'm kind of intuiting that you made a transition consciously or maybe not. Maybe life happened to you like it happened to all of us. Right. In Mm -hmm. the period to doing this full time, I'm guessing, like Mm -hmm. what were all the dominoes that had to fall to get to that place?
2: I felt like a lot of dominoes of what I thought my career should be fell and toppled. I really took the pandemic to heart and all the other, you know, George Floyd and all of the subsequent stories and happenings that came after that. And then it really hit home like smack for me with the anti-Asian assaults happening and increasing. And I mean, one, there was a, a Thai person, a Thai man, Lung Cha, who was assaulted in San Francisco so one he was Thai and two it was in my hometown so that it really hit me and then it really hit that in even in my town that is the town I lived in at the time was Daly City and it's 60 percent Asian and it's like oh are we safe and it's actually no we we weren't because I would hear in the plaza that I shopped that you know elders were being pushed as they were standing in line waiting for something and so it really unsettled me and settled me and my friends and the feeling of also like, well, this is the reality for a lot of people their whole lives, you know, not just like this momentary pandemic scare of, you know, who can we blame? And so I said, you know, what am I going to do? I'm I'm not, even though I work with a lot of movement leaders and activists, I'm not a rallying type. I don't consider myself an advocate in the traditional sense, And but I, I've really felt called to do something and what was the most something that i could do that that was true to me i think is 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 really what motivated me and they it didn't all happen kind of at once there were a lot of things converging there was i had taken a job where i actually you know learned a lot my first year but i couldn't see myself doing it you know for long term and i was like oh okay well how long do I stay then if if I don't think I'm going to sink my teeth into this? And so as I exited that, I had already the idea of making the book real. Finally, after years of being encouraged to, was a louder voice in my head, and it it just converged that way. You know, just the buildup of. I think the pandemic and again, everything else that as we paused for the pandemic, that everything else, whatever, I think it's different for everybody But when, when somebody pauses and, and what what did I see is, is that's what I saw. It's like, what am I going to contribute for the future generations? Because so much, I was somebody's next generation. You know, my elders said that, you know, they came here with the best of hopes, you know, moving to the United States and, and I was their next generation. And it's like, oh, OK, I'm coming up upon that, upon that question. You know, my elderhood is coming. And I saw that my elders weren't really phased. The, the auntie I told you about earlier, the one who was in prime health, even in her 80s, she the pandemic happened and there was no more food market at the Thai temple. And she's like, OK, I'm going to go hook, cook home, cooked meals for the monks Then nobody else is feeding them. And I was like, wow, that's the same determination. I guess the same the same thing that helped me have lunch solidly every day is the same thing that ignited her to say, okay, once there's no more kind of food supply line for the Thai Temple, then I take it on. And so it's like, well, what am I going to take on? And that was the impetus really to get going on this book. I started making phone calls, writing emails, like looking for visual artists, illustrators, listing out what I was going to do. And so it, it began to feel real for me.
3: And what is your greatest hope for the next generations to come with this book? And what is the thing that you're, you you want to transmit beyond the, the knowledge of these recipes? I feel like there's something, there's a deep essence there. I'd love for you to share.
2: I think food undoubtedly comes with stories and community. It's like, it's very hard to disentangle that. And so in cook, I would say cooking specific. I I won't necessarily say food, actually. I'll say cooking. Cooking and eating together. With it just comes community and stories. And I just think, you know, time immemorial, past, present, future, you know, it, it just kind of all blurs together where to me, that's the mainstay food and community and stories is kind of the co- cohesion, at least for humans. <laughs> and, and I it, think...
3: Uh-huh. And is this book for the, um, the Thai children of the future and, and current, or is it beyond that, would you say?
2: My intention was to have it, to have readers of the book be anybody who wants to have an intimate understanding of cooking for oneself, feeding myself, feeding each other. It can be for Thai youth, and I would be incredibly proud if they read it. But for me, it's just for anybody who just wants, if people hear the story of my religious, very rigid lunch ritual and say that that is very foreign to them, but they would like a taste of that, I I think it's definitely meant for them too. to just remember to have a moment with feeding oneself and feeding each other. You know, it's kind of just one of those essential human experiences. I think it's it's you know, on keel with making music or singing or making art. I love that line.
1: Cooking comes with stories and community. It's the cohesion of humans. You you sort of swallowed that last line as you were sort of saying <laughs> it, but it's actually I feel like an essential like thing like to me if like because what i'm hearing you know if that sort of bigger why is that you actually believe in the cohesion of humans and yeah. for you then if you believe in that cohesion of humans well then how do you do that right and for yeah. you you do it through cooking and because with cooking come stories and community so i think that's absolutely beautiful and we really appreciate what you're doing. Is there any questions that we haven't asked that you'd like to answer? Or
3: Or any questions that you have for us?
2: I would say on similar, along the similar themes of cohesion and community and story, what, what have you seen come from your gratitude circles and, and even of, of this super sweet offering of, of giving everybody, you know, a plant and a theme. I, I just love it. You know, what, what has, what has come out what has blossomed for you
1: for this season i've just been playing with this idea that heartfulness is the new mindfulness huh and and i think how we move deeper into our embodied somatic practices right like kind of, what i really appreciate about our conversation with you is that like you're like, no, nah, I don't say anything before we eat. we just eat, you know, like it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's like it's like it's the economy stupid, like it's the food stupid, right? Like eat, um, and you know, and I and I think like one idea that I've just been playing with, and and it, and it and part of it is because it, it's emergent in some of the conversations that we're having, but like. A little bit of what we're doing is shifting a narrative from the Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, to sort of the, the Ubuntu, I am because you are, right? And think about that. I think, therefore I am, to I am because you are. It's all of a sudden like we went from just a relationship to our thinking to a relationship to each other.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: And so I feel like that's those are the stories that are coming to us and that we're also I would say coming to us in many ways. And so part of it is like how are we trying to weave this larger narrative with what like you're doing?
2: But I, this is not the first time I've I've seen these cards. I mean, I've seen them, you know, in, in some of the you know convenings that we've been in Omar and I think somebody brought it actually to one of my staff meetings. that's awesome like brought the deck wow yeah yeah so I whatever mergings of art and food and expression and and things that bring people together in in a way that and I'm, I'm getting this more and more as I continue to practice too because because I have been a performer but actually what Whatever it is that brings people together in a way where they actually don't have to perform anymore mm. um, is where I hope people will enter into my book or, you know, the experiences that are attached to the book or at least the, the message of, of what it is. But, you know, I think I'm even as it's being released, I'm still coming to an understanding of whatever essence I want to share with people what's that flavor what's that like one bit of umami that I really want to kind of like shine out of the book
3: the word that keeps coming to me in terms of a feeling is this essence of nour- nour- nourishing and what I would say about just the question you pose around social co- cohesion is I feel like all what we're doing right now right you talking about food and cooking and community and us Bringing arts, art and plants and gratitude together. It's like, it's like these social objects that help us drop into our humanity. Yeah. And I think the thing that has been most shocking to me is how hard that is right now in these modern times where we don't have the social glue of family or community necessarily. We can't count on the fact that everyone has that. And then when you bring people together, it's awkward unless you have the food as the connection point or mm-hmm. the gratitude blooming cards to invite like something deeper because it's almost like a language that we have to like learn again. We don't have the fire of the ancestor sitting around a circle with a talking stick or a, a meal to g- glue us together. And so I feel like in many ways, our, our missions are aligned in that, like yeah. the depth of the nourishment, right? There's the actual physical nourishment and then there's the emotional nourishment, yeah. which I feel like you're holding in that as well and that's what's the social cohesion you
2: know around all of this when when you said language I, i think actually one of the big themes that has come through in writing this book is i think thai americans have this way or thai diaspora has this way of sizing each other up by how well we speak thai and i've had to climb that mountain of reclaiming the fluency of What was actually my first language, but then got usurped by English. And I think that a lot of people chase after language as the, I don't know, indicator of how connected one might be to, quote unquote, their people, our people. And I actually think that if one would like to climb the language mountain, you may. I I hope there's a very good reason. To do that. For me, it it was very practical because of who I was with and staying connected to family. But if that actually isn't a priority for people, I would, I would say actually deprioritize language because the faster route to connection is food. I have a story about that in my book where I said, Hey mom, would you rather have me know how to cook Thai or speak Thai? And of course her answer was both. It wasn't even a choice for her, but I, I will say that my choice should a younger generation person ask me, is I would choose food first, absolutely. Know how to cook, know how to eat. I think it will connect us as well as connect us to the earth and and to many more things than just words might.
1: I love that. I mean, that's going to be the quote somewhere. The fastest path to connection is food.
2: It's so it's so accessible and and it's like you know it's like humor. Is it funny or is it not? (laughs) You need a
1: quote on your book somewhere. That one fastest path to connection is food. That one is amazing.
3: (laughs) It's also so many different forms of expression, right? Beyond what comes out of your mouth in in terms of a sound, it's like the whole shebang, the whole all the senses you're inviting in Mm -hmm. through that eating and the cooking experience. Mm.
2: Yeah. But yeah, thank you. Your your response in terms of your work kind of highlighted that for me in my brain.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us for for writing your book. And oh,
2: this has been so fun and amazing. Thank you for for the space to talk and share.